Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Announcement. So as you have seen, if you're here this morning, you may have seen out in the lobby that there's all these signs that say pardon our dust and get ready for changes. The theater is going to change because AMC Sundial 20 is over the next few months going to transform into AMC Sundial 12. Oh, that's all right. It's only the fourth time I've had things thrown at me during a sermon. It's not a problem at all. Uh, so, uh, as we are going through that, there's going to be some changes for us at City Church. For instance, starting on July 8th, instead of meeting in Theater 4, we'll meet in Theater 14. Instead of the kids being in the nursery, the kids will be in the music room. There'll be all sorts of changes that are coming up, but some of those changes may even result in something really cool. One of the changes might be that when Theaters 13 to 20 are shut down, we as a church may be able to lease one of those on a long-term basis. That's a, that's a distinct possibility. Jess, can you turn my mic down some more? I am just feeling really loud. Um, so there we go. Thank you. As we go through... No, no, no. Either way. Um, <laughs> here we are. Um, as we go through these changes, as we work through these things, change is something that we all have a reaction to. Change is something that all of us either love or hate or feel something in between, but change creates a reaction in us. For some of us, we are lovers of chaos. If everything changed every day, we would love it. You, you are the kind of people, if this is you, who never take the same route home from work are always trying different ways, mixing it up. The kind of people that don't eat leftovers because I already had that thing. I already had that meal. I don't want another one of them. Some of us love change. But more commonly, many of us, if not most of us, hate change. We hate when anything gets rearranged. We hate when things are not the way that they've always been done. We hate that feeling that change creates. Because for some of us, change creates fear. Will, will, will things be okay? On the other side of these changes, are things going to be all right? Or maybe change fills us with anxiety. Am I going to be okay? If I have to change jobs, am I going to be okay? If I have to move houses, am I going to be okay? If I have a kid, am I going to be okay? Anytime we experience changes, we experience fear, we experience anxiety, and we experience impatience. When will I know the answer to my questions on how this is going to change? What's going to happen? Who's in charge? See, most of the time, our resistance to change this resistance that we feel because of fear, because of anxiety, because of impatience, is born from our desire to keep everything arranged in a way that benefits us. See, what we really don't mind is change that helps us. 
Most of us really don't mind if the company were to come to us and say, oh, hey, by the way, we're changing your paycheck up a little bit and we're giving you twice as much. That, that sort of change does not create fear or anxiety or impatience in most of us. For most of us, we would be quite excited about that change. Whenever it's good change, we like it. Whenever it's bad change, whenever it's uncertain change, whenever it rearranges anything in our life so that it doesn't continue to benefit us to the same degree, that's when we begin to struggle. Because when things are going our way, and even when they're just going reasonably well, change threatens us. And so we object. We try to make sure it doesn't happen. We fight against it. Or we run away and hide. And if we do try to think towards solutions, if we do try to engage with the process of change, all we're really doing most of the time is trying to keep things as close to the way that we like them as we can. We don't want to change. We especially don't like changes that hurt us. And any time we sort of stop changes, it's almost always to benefit ourselves. Now, here's the thing. We are not alone in that. And that is nothing new to us here at City Church, to us here in America. Rather, the church has dealt with this forever. In the very early church in the time of the New Testament, that church dealt with that as well. And on top of that, the way that it was struggling through these questions, these changes, was started when somebody accused the early church of being racist. And so this morning, we come to a passage where we are going to see what happens there. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, on Pentecost Sunday, Peter preached in his native Aramaic tongue. But as he did, people from all around the world who were gathered to worship there in Jerusalem on Pentecost heard the word of God in their own languages. But guess what? Most of the people who were there that day were from all sorts of different places around the world. They were just in town visiting for the festival. And guess what they did after that? They went home. So the church in Jerusalem was made up almost exclusively of people from, you guessed it, Jerusalem. But even within that church in Jerusalem, even within that small infancy of the Christian faith, there was diversity. Because some of the people there in Jerusalem had been born and raised in the Jewish tradition. But others had come from families that had moved from out of town. They came from Jewish families spread throughout the world. Jewish families who didn't grow up teaching their children Aramaic, who grew up teaching their children Greek, which was the the language of the people, which was the language that everybody knew and understood. And that is where this story from Acts chapter 6 comes in. So I'd like to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'd like you to stand as I read it. So please stand with me. Now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. 
a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This growing church in the very early chapters of Acts required a growing leadership. But the resistance comes in when things change. And so we see in this church a set of problems. It seems that in the early church that the people were generous. That this is something that that the writer of Acts, Luke, assumes. That the people of God were being generous and giving to the church. And the church was taking that money. And one of the things that they were doing with that money was distributing it to the widows of the church, to those who could not take care of themselves. Except there was a problem. The problem was the Aramaic-speaking widows were getting first crack at it before the Greek-speaking widows were. And so all of the Greek-speaking folks started to stand up and say, um, hey, can we talk for just a second? Because our widows are being ignored. And only the ones who speak Aramaic, only the ones that sort of have longer family roots here, they're the only ones who are getting a part of this distribution that is coming through. So it wasn't being equal. Now, I want to stop just for a second before I move on and point out uh, that this is the right way to handle conflict in the church, by the way. Did they, did they complain and gossip and just like, like moan about it until somebody did something about it? Or did they take it to the apostles? They took it to the apostles. And you know what else they were? They were a part of the solution because as soon as they take it to the apostles, the apostles say, okay, great, you're right. We don't have it all together. We as the apostles aren't gifted to do this. So let's have you, the people who are, who are complaining, let's have you gather together with the rest of the church and let's find a solution to this problem. And so they chose seven men. These are the first men of what we call deacons. And they chose these seven men. And there's something really interesting about these seven names that are listed. Because for us, most of us go, okay, there's some guys there. That one guy's name looks like Timon from Lion King. And that's kind of cool. But other than that, we sort of breeze over these names. And when we do, we actually miss something very significant. This conflict in this passage is between the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, and the Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. And so they pick out seven men 
from the congregation of the church in Jerusalem. And their names are things like Prochorus and Stephen and Nicholas. Now put your thinking caps on if you're a Christian this morning and think, do those sound like the names that show up all over the Old Testament? Or do those sound like names that might be on a list of Caesar? They sound more like Caesar's names than they do Old Testament names. And the reason for that is that all seven of these names are of Greek language origin. Now, why did I just tell you what kind of names people have? Because this is a big deal. There is a conflict in the church. And the Hellenist minority is being neglected in the daily distribution of the fund. And the church of Jesus Christ begins to look at this problem. And as they install the solution, guess who they choose to help lead the church? Hellenist. They choose Greek-speaking Christians to begin this opportunity, to begin this new diaconate. Now, it's interesting because as we talk about this idea, if we talk about this idea of, of minorities in a community, it can begin to sound a little bit political, right? And that's something in our day and age that is tough. I don't think it's a stretch for us to sort of say that our, our country is politically divided. I don't know if you've noticed that. Something I've picked up on vaguely. And it's easy to begin to try to take our politics and read our Bible through that lens. The problem is that the Bible is never quite as simple and clean cut as we want it to be. If we ignore one part of this, we go, ah, yes, well, look, they just chose minority. If we ignore another part of it, we go, oh, yes, but they just choose the men that were full of the Holy Spirit. We, we try to read the Bible through the agenda of our political lens. And City Church, that is not what God has in mind for us. The Word of God stands apart from any political party, any country, any nationality. The Word of God transcends all of that. And so we let the Word of God speak for itself. So these people in the city of Jerusalem chose for themselves seven men all of them Greek speaking, not to meet a quota, not for tokenism, not to just do that, but rather these men were chosen by the faithfulness that they had. So let's take a look for a few minutes at the characteristics, both of the elders in this church and of the deacons. Because as we talk about this, one of the things that we're doing as we discuss the spiritual leadership, the offices, and officers of the church. We're doing this because in just a few weeks, in July, we're going to open up nominations for the first class of elders and deacons at our church. And this is a big step to our us becoming our own particular church, our own self-governing church. It's not like it's going to happen right around the corner. This is a process of training that's going to take about a year. However, this is beginning to happen in our church. And so as the next few weeks we discuss what it means to be an elder, what it means to be a deacon, what these people are are characterized by, what these men look like, keep on your radar who you think might be called to do just that. 
Because we see elders in these passages. In this case, it was the, the 12 apostles who were appointed by Jesus. And one of the things that we see is that they were humble. Notice that when they said, when people came to them and said, hey, look, we, we, some of us are being ignored in the daily distribution. The, the widows of the Greek-speaking Christians aren't getting their fair share. Guess what? The apostles didn't say, well, that's not our problem. Don't you know what else I have to do? No, they say, yes, you are right. We can't do this all on our own. They were men of humility, willing to admit that they needed help, but they were also willing to listen to others. They didn't say, nah, that's not a problem. You're just making that up. Nah, let's just ignore that and move on. No, they said, okay, we will listen to it. And also, as we get the solution together for this problem, we're not just going to impose it on you. You notice what they did. They told the church, you find these guys. It wasn't the apostles standing around and going, uh, eeny, meeny, miny. Oh, there you go. That's your job now. No, no, no. They told the people, you find men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You find men of good reputation. You go find these guys. But they're also not thin-skinned. They're also not thin-skinned, which is something that many of us struggle with, don't we? When somebody says something, we're quick to think of the worst way possible that that applies to us. And you know what? That's not a characteristic of the apostles. They were focused on studying and applying the Bible. They were men of prayer. And they were men who were willing to give away ministry and power. Notice the the apostles didn't say, yeah, we'll let some other people do this, but we'll go with them. No, they fully invested in these seven deacons the power to take care of all of the distribution. To take all the money and go take care of it. They weren't holding on. They weren't grasping to their power. That's the kind of men that God says are elders. And it's interesting because it's easy for us to begin to think that, ah, yes, elders, those are the super Christians. Those are the people who God loves extra. And here I am, and God loves me a little bit. And we make this error of thinking that there is a stratification, that there is a hierarchy of vocations in the minds of God. And there's this idea where, okay, well, like, like missionaries are like, like, like really good Christians. And then like, like church planters, you know. And then regular pastors whose jobs aren't as hard, you know, and have offices and stuff like that, right? And then like, you know, maybe like, you know, Sunday school coordinator, you know, you go, down, go on down the list, you get to like teacher, that's a pretty good one, you know, and then you go on further down the list and then you're like, you know, trash collector and waste management supervisor, and then you keep going, and then all the way down to the, you get to the lawyers, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's kind of like, we joke about that, and we joke about lawyers being at the bottom of the list, but it's not uncommon for us to visually think that some vocations, some occupations are more worthy in the eyes of God than others. Some are better. You know what? God must really love those people. But the, the hard fact of the matter is, the difference is not in God's love for us. The difference is not in any merit 
that we bring to God. Because guess how much merit you can rightfully bring to God? None of it. It's because of the merit of Jesus that you are loved anyway. No, what is going on here is a difference in calling. Not all of us are called to do the same thing. Let me give you an example of this. Most of you know that um, I'm not very good at math. Not my strong suit. Not something that I can easily do, right? Like, like my son was asking me the other day how many yards were in a mile, to which I responded to him, I don't know, man. You're like 10 years old. You do the math. 5,280 feet divided by three. And so he's sitting in the back of the car, and I'm driving. And I'm gonna, in my defense, I was driving, and he was not driving. But he quickly, in his mind, goes, carry the three. Oh, it's, you know, 1760, 1760. And in my mind, I'm going, yeah, I was getting there. It took me longer. I was, I was waiting for it. I was trying to figure it out, right? Well, this played itself out in our marriage because I was given the advice when we were first getting married that if I was any sort of man, I would do the finances in our relationship, that I would take care of the checkbook because that's what men do. And so I started doing that. Um, I started making a lot of bad decisions, primary of which was I was at uh, grad school, I was at seminary one day, and they said, uh, hey, Justin, you need to go down and see the guy in the office. His name's Lanny. And I go and I see him. And he says, hey, oh, by the way, you, uh, you need to pay for your classes today. And I said, yeah, well, I've got a lot of, got a lot of, you know, a lot of, lot of dogs in the fire. You know what I mean? I've got this old lady. She's going to give me some money. And I applied for the scholarship online. And who knows? I mean, that might come through. And uh, there's these other things. I, I've got a lot of things going on. The guy's like, no, it's, it's drop ad day. So either you pay me today or you don't go to school here this year. I said, like, well, I don't have a checkbook with me. Like, what do I do? And the guy's like, oh, we take credit card. I was like, oh, a semester of grad school on credit card? That 20% is 20 Who cares? So I'll just do that. That's fine. Cool. And I go ahead and I put a semester of grad school on a credit card with a 20% interest rate. As you do. I mean, that's the most normal, logical thing in the world. No. No, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. My wife is brilliant with numbers and things like that. She was an economics teacher. She forever should have been running that. Why? Because, because she's better than me. Why? Because, because it's an issue of authority. No, no, no. It's an issue of calling. And the difference between elders and deacons, the difference between trashmen and pastors, the difference between mothers and stay-at-home mothers and working mothers, the difference is not a difference of value. It's a difference of calling. It's not like deacons were the JV squad of the elders. Right? It's not like there's a, a baseball system, right, where there's triple A, there's double A, there's high A, there's regular A, there's low A, there's rookie ball, there's Dominican Development League, right? It's not like there's sort of this ladder that you ascend and the second two rungs are deacon and elder. No, the difference between them is a difference of calling, not of intrinsic value or love of God. Because no matter where we are in our calling, no matter whether or not we're called to hold office in the church, whether or not 
we're called to serve in the nursery or or set up and tear down, whether or not we're called to wherever God calls us. It's not because you have any merit and you have any special favor with Jesus because, again, that has already been won by him. It's not our own good works that we hold on to. It's those of Jesus. And so we see these elders not as junior varsity or not these deacons, not as junior varsity elders, but as men committed to be serving others. Which is hard, because if you're anything like me, you like to be served, not to serve. Because whenever we serve, we have to give up what we want. We have to give up our time. We have to give up our finances. We have to give our talent to others. And we'd rather hoard those. We'd rather keep those tight in our hand, but rather know that deacons were service-oriented like we should be. They were concerned with the least of these, the widows in the church, those who could not provide for themselves. They were men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, a life that was overflowing, a life that is rooted and grounded in the gospel in a way that seeps out into everything else around it. And they were wise. All of these things, all of these characteristics, both of the elders and the deacons, are, first of all, things that we should emulate, but even more than that, they are found in the character of Jesus. It's a reminder of Jesus' humility. Because you want to know who made Jesus the maddest? You want to know the people that Jesus reserved his strongest words for? It was the proud. It was those who thought in their hearts or said out loud to him, look what I've got going on. You should really like me. It's those people who Jesus quickly critiques. When they come to him, Jesus tells stories like the story of the Pharisee who stands in front of the the temple and says, I thank God that I'm not like everybody else here. And God says, that man goes home no closer to God. And then the widow who comes in, the, the tax collector who comes into the back and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, that guy gets it. It's not the person with the right religious clothes. It's not the person with the right religious terminology or language. It's the person who cries out and says, I am in in need of forgiveness because I don't have it together. Jesus is always like, that guy. Find me that guy. Because Jesus sees that. He sees that our hearts need to be humble in order to need him. Because Jesus came to die and to serve. You want to talk about change? Think about the story of the incarnation of Jesus. He leaves behind heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He leaves behind all that is there, all the joys and pleasures to come to this this earth and be incarnate in a human body that gets sick where he had to lose teeth. He came to this earth and had to deal with all of the sight and sounds of humanity, all of the smells of humanity. And he leaves heaven and comes to that. Except unlike us, he does it 
without sin. And he does it to serve and love and die for proud people like you and I. For people who are resistant to any sort of change like you and I. Jesus shows us what humility looks like, but then also gives us a way out of our pride. And that's through his death, through his resurrection, through trusting in him, through abandoning our hope, our holding up of all of our good work, our desire to keep things the same, to to avoid change. So this morning, our call is to repent of our selfishness and hostility to change. Turn from that city church, it is getting you nowhere. It's killing you. All of the selfish ways that you try to maintain control, all of the selfish ways that you try to keep everything safe and secure, all of the selfish ways that you chase your pleasure or try to maintain things, all of those are doing nothing but killing you. And so the call is to repent. You see, for most of us, we want other people to change and we don't want to change ourselves because when I change, when I really change, that change is always born out of God convicting me of my sin out of God, reminding me of who he is. The journey from selfishness to selflessness is painful, but we have a good savior who loves us and gave himself for us. So that's who we turn to. Nothing in our hands, following after him and his yoke. Let's pray.